This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Uh, last night, there was a big park board meeting, one where bylaw amendments were being debated about camping in Vancouver parks. Uh, so to debrief on that, because nothing's yet been decided, there's another meeting tonight, but let's let's dig through what we've learned thus far, because it's kind of confusing. So we connect now with political commentator and a former Vancouver City Councillor, George Affleck. Hey, George. Good morning. Nice to chat with you. Of course, uh, another big park board meeting on a Monday. <laughs> what, uh, what went down last night? Oh my gosh. I mean, park board uh, has, you know, serious dysfunction these days on so many issues. But last night they were debating whether to uh, basically uh, solidify the allowing of camping in, in uh, our parks in Vancouver. Um, and uh, currently their bylaw is, is, it does not permit camping in our, in our parks. Uh, they are saying they'll create a bylaw because of um, a, an issue related to another park in, in BC uh, that they think this is important to do. And, and the, the cross-section of lack of support on uh, every side of the political spectrum was was evident last night. I would like to uh, just insert my head exploding emoji. Why on earth would we want to create a bylaw that allows camping in parks in Vancouver? Hasn't haven't we struggled with Oppenheimer Park and Crab Park and now in Strathcona uh, that that these parks are are sort of ex- or these camps are sort of expanding homelessness? The issue certainly, George, you and I have talked about this a ton, uh, but but what is being debated here in the bylaw amendment that's coming into play doesn't actually affect encampments. This is about just like if, if you and I want to go camp in a park. Well, that makes it possible for sure. Uh, you know, the BC Supreme court in 2009 uh, voted uh, to support an encampment uh, and camping in parks in, in, in Victoria, I think it was um, because of the constitutional rights and all those things. Uh, but nothing in most cities has been done since then, including Vancouver. Uh, but there, that's the argument that some people on this park board are saying they need to do this bylaw but i would argue if, uh you know in in government when pol- with policy if, you know if, you, if you're not solving a problem with new policy then why are you doing the, the, a new policy and in this case you're creating two problems one is you're yeah it looks like you're permitting uh, social camping like people anybody wants to pitch a tent and as long as they leave by 7 a.m all good uh, and the other is that the homeless uh, problem um, won't be solved. And, and in fact, some of the advocates for the encampments are saying this policy is overly restrictive to them. So you have both sides of, of the argument saying this, this bylaw is not workable. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and not to mention the timing is terrible. I mean, you know, you just did a story or you're talking about the, the provincial government and its deficit that's coming in. We know about the federal deficit. Well, the park board and the city is in the same situation. The only thing that the park board should be focused on right now is their financial problems. Uh, this bylaw, in fact, will force potentially a diversion of money in order to enforce this new bylaw. I mean, how are they going to enforce this bylaw? Who is going to enforce this bylaw? When are they going to enforce this bylaw? And as you mentioned, include encampments as the staff said last night in the meeting it doesn't include encampment so it's not going to solve that problem either i need to back this up why is this on the table now what was the trigger for the vancouver park board to decide that now mid-pandemic july 13th i guess it was last night to put this on the table with so many other issues at play what was the catalyst for this amendment to even come 
to to well, the, to be. Their excuse is the 2009 decision by the Supreme Court of British Columbia, but their reason is clearly a, a, a board of directors of, of the parks, an elected board, uh, who every day make themselves less and less uh, uh, viable, I think, as an elected body, um, uh, have decided that, that they are going to solve homelessness and housing in our city. But that is now the role of the park board. And if you read the roles and responsibilities of park board, and John Cooper, Commissioner John Cooper, was on uh, on Linda Steele yesterday saying it's the exact same thing. This is not within their, you know, their duties as park commissioners. No. And they are straying away from the roles and responsibilities of the park board. And, and you have to ask yourself why. And it's because you have a majority of this Green Cope Alliance who are basically advocates as opposed to doing their job. They are straying into territory that is not within their uh, responsibility and, uh, and have become politicized the park board to a level that I've never seen before. So as a former Vancouver City Councillor, George, you've you've been deeply immersed in municipal politics and how difficult it is to to get things done or find find your way and navigate through the processes of of municipal politics. Does it appear to you from what I'm hearing, is it accurate for me to surmise that this current park board uh, really want to be city councillors or 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 some other level of government, given what they they continually put forward, trying to tackle homelessness from a park board perspective seems flawed. God help us if any of these incompetent commissioners that are uh, speaking these days can move up the levels of politics because they have created so much chaos at Park Board in their short two years there. Uh, but, yeah, I think there are political, uh, uh, you know, motivations going on there uh, from some of them, and I think that that is not uh, cool. Uh, I think your job is your job, and you need to focus on that, and they have lost focus on what the role of the Park Board is, which is, for parks, for everyone. And right now, they seem to be only fo- focused on one agenda for in parks, and that's camping in every level. Uh, and, they've, and they've lost focus on everything else, including their financial responsibility to the people of this city, uh, because clearly once we get the numbers from Park Board, it's going to be devastating. There are going to be you know millions and millions of dollars in debt and deficit, and their deficit will be huge, and they're not allowed to run deficit. So where is that money coming from uh, is the question. And I, they have no solution. There's no solution for that being discussed because they're so busy dealing with this issue and another issue and that issue and this issue. It's like, you guys, you got to get focused here. Uh, we heard uh, in the latest polling that the priorities is COVID and the next most important thing is jobs and the economy. And, and you know, they, they don't seem to understand that at all at Parkport. Well, it seems like, and maybe this is naive for me to say, but it, it feels like this is a sparkly thing because of how hot things got around the Stanley Park separated bike lane and the and the the backlog of vehicles behind horse-drawn carriages and big plastic uh, dividers, expensive dividers down and how it's impacting businesses and it's exclusive. For, it, this kind of feels like, hey, let's put a sparkly thing on the table and change the headline and, and change the narrative. I know, we'll, we'll talk about... Par- Parks being open to camping. That's what it feels like here a little bit. Well, it's agenda-driven. The Green Cove Alliance at Park Board have the environment as one of their priorities, and that's, that, that explains the bike, the bike lane in, the, in Stanley Park as a priority to them. Uh, and then this issue of housing, which is another priority uh, for the Green Cove Alliance, not only in Park Board but at City Council as well, is that they, they believe that housing is, is their number one issue. Um, and clearly we know from polling right now that it's not the number one issue in this province. Uh, it's it's COVID. And the only right. issue that, that Park Board has dealt with related to COVID is the drinking in parks. And they still have, they, you know, 
what, three months later, and they still haven't dealt with that issue. The one issue that probably could have made people happy in this COVID right. nightmare that we're living in, they haven't dealt right. with that one. So they've been so focused on these other issues. The one issue that could have made people happy that was related to COVID, the number one issue in the polling that we have in this province, and they didn't deal with it. It's, it's upside down and backwards, and, and they've lost their way, uh, and 2022 election can't come soon enough if only time can speed up. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith, continuing our chat with George Affleck, political commentator, former Vancouver City Councillor. We're talking about the Park Board meeting, the Vancouver Park Board meeting that happened last night that will continue tonight. 90 people apparently lined up uh, to chime in on the bylaw amendment that's on the table that would allow overnight camping at city parks in Vancouver. And, and many Strathcona residents thought this change might actually help address the concerns with the new tent city in their neighborhood. Well, they found out that if passed, the scope of the bylaw actually does does not apply to encampments. So we're opening up the phone lines. Your thoughts on this 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Uh, again, your calls for George Affleck. Rick in Vancouver, you're up first. Hey, Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree more with the Parks Board. I've never been in favor of this elected Parks Board. They say they're independent, yet they rely on council for their money. I think the problem is, is these people, their parties can't get elected to majority positions where they could make these decisions on city council. So they going to impose their beliefs in an area where they shouldn't even be dealing with in the parks board. Is that what's happening, George? Well, there's definitely over the years, and certainly within Vision in their first term, a, a, a decision, a strategic decision to weaken the park board through through restraining cash going to them. They cut their budgets, they cut the the funds that came to them, they forced them to find ways to raise funds through mostly parking uh, to in order to underwrite the cost of running the park board. Um, it's the only park board in Canada, their elected park board. Every other city in Canada has, uh, you know, it's a parks and recreation department as part of the city. So in its, in its, in its own way, it, it, it's automatically political because they're elected. So you can't avoid politics at park board because it's elected. However, once you're elected, generally, once you get into office, you, just, you know, you have four years to do your mandate and do some things that you think are important. And you kind of want to push this, you know, the, the politics aside. But there seems to be another agenda here uh, with these park board commissioners that isn't related to actual park board work. And that's where uh, that's the first time that we've seen that happening at park board where they are. You know, he says this gentleman said that city council is pushing their agenda on the park board. But in this case, park board is pushing an overall major agenda onto everyone uh and and the parks are are the victim of of a of, you know neglect now because of of their agenda at park board yeah without consultation in some cases and we've talked a lot about when the park board does work and that would be longtime commissioner john cooper saving the bloedel conservatory like the that, in my mind, is when the park board is working. Uh, what we're seeing from this current uh, board uh, seems just all over the map. Let's go to, uh, oh, I was going to say Tony in Surrey, but he disappeared off of our, our call screen. George, in your experience with, um, you brought up Vision Vancouver and how they sort of um, handcuffed the park board uh, in mm -hmm. trying to sort of defund it to some degree. Uh, where does that leave our current park board? And, and while so many municipal voters, the Vancouver voters, really had a bad taste in their mouth by the end of the Vision run when Vision didn't even uh, take part in the last election. And and many people just went, well, anybody but them and started mm -hmm. just like randomly. I remember going in and looking at that ballot. It had whatever, 38 
um, options that you had to go through and check off and people just sort of willy nilly. And we're kind of finding out how it can get, it can get messy if, if there's sort of no clear cut sort of everybody's done their homework on what everybody stands for policy in municipal politics. That's just, you know, yeah. coming in uh, off the top of my head. We do have Richard from Vancouver on the line. Sorry, sorry to ramble there, but I just, I'm trying to get, it's frustrating uh-huh. to watch this all happen because we think we're making the pendulum swing in the right direction. And actually we're kind of breaking it from a voting perspective. Richard in Vancouver. Thanks for waiting. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, listen, uh, I'm, I'm really taken back by what's happening in the Vancouver parks and all this. Uh, I've lived here all my life. I'm in Victoria on vacation right now. It's beautiful over here and they have a similar, similar problem over here. But, um, what I'd like to talk about is the fact that I don't know if a lot of people know this, but back about in the eighties, we had civic election cycles every two years, and then they moved it to three years um, around that time. And in the last two election cycles, we've moved civic elections to every four years. And I think this is really a, really a bad thing because it stops the public from holding politicians feet to the fire and if we're going to have a four-year cycle i think that half the park sports seats and half the council seats should come up for by-elections and midterms just like they kind of do in the united states just to hold these politicians yeah. feet to the fire because yeah. essentially what we have you know like these guys once they get in power they they start imposing their philosophies and ideologies onto the public and i think that's what's going wrong in Vancouver at these, the present time. Thanks, yeah, Richard. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think that that, that four-year term is, is devastating. Not only, uh, and that was a decision by the province and nobody saw it coming, uh, it, it puts a, a school, you know, school board, park board, and, and councils at a different level of politics. Uh, it forces a lot of people who might be great uh, local elected leaders to, to make them less interested because they go, well, I don't know, four years, that's a long time. I'm not sure I can make that kind of commitment. And it makes it more political because then you've got these people who are professional politicians who decide that this is what they want to do. I did it for two terms. I had enough. I wanted, you know, I gave my what I wanted to do, you know, to Vancouver and I moved on. Now it's like you have to do, you know, four, eight, 12 years. How long do you have to commit? That two-year term or three-year max was good. And he's, he's very right that this has created a real political problem at a local level, especially in smaller towns where you're asking local leaders to run for office for four years. It's a, supposed, you know, it's a board of directors, really, and you're asking them to be four years? That's a long commitment, and, and you're scaring away really competent people, unfortunately. Well, we thank you for your perspective as always, George, and I think we've really pulled something out there, Richard, in Vancouver. Thank you for that call on vacation, no less, because that brings to the table, what can we do to make so that this doesn't continue to be an issue here? Because uh, it is very frustrating and stressful for so many. George Affleck, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith this week and 10 o'clock. That means it is time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, checking in on all hot topics of the day. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jody. Good to have you on here. And we are going to open up the phone line, so get your dialing fingers ready. If you have a question that you've been just dying to ask Keith Baldry, your opportunity is straight ahead. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. But first, I get to ask a few questions here. And certainly, Keith, um, right off the hop, let's get to something that was uh, a a very tense sort of scare for the NDP uh, last night. Yes. so this was a a vote on the ICBC bill. This was at the committee stage. Um, 
And this is a bill that's uh, reforming ICBC, taking it to a no-fault system. Uh, and unexpectedly, the vote was very close, 42-41. Uh, the NDP got a serious scare there. Uh, Andrew Weaver from the Greens was not there. He wasn't voting, but more importantly, Ginny Sims, the Surrey NDP MLA, was also missing in action. So I've talked to some New Democrats today who were quite uh, concerned that they almost lost a vote here. And one of the issues we're seeing in this virtual parliament, Jody, is like nobody's, there's very few people actually in the legislature. Everybody's at home, in their offices, on Zoom. And you're supposed to show up on Zoom on these votes. And there have been, I think, some cases where the speaker in the past has let slide some of the votes, uh, just saying, well, the eyes have it, so saying the government's won, without actually formally counting the vote. And so that's a, a formal count is done on what's called a division. And division was called last night by the Liberals, which they have the opposition can do that. And uh, the NDP was almost caught napping. It wouldn't have meant the government would have fallen from power. But it would have been a major embarrassment for the NDP. This is the um, this is the centerpiece legis- piece of legislation in this session. Uh, the most critical bill uh, would have had some far-reaching reforms from ICBC. If that vote had failed last night, they would have had to go back to square one. My understanding of the standing rules is a bill cannot be reintroduced in the current session. It would have to wait for the next session. So it would have derailed significantly the um, the attempts to reform ICBC. And just a reminder to the NDP. They are still a minority government. They don't have all the cards here. Uh, and mm-hmm. when you're in a virtual parliament, uh, and when you physically don't see everybody standing next to you, uh, there can be a hiccup. And there was a hiccup last night, and they almost lost that vote. So that was a scare for them. No kidding. And there's going to be strategic politics at play by the opposition, for sure. And this dumpster fire could have gone on, like you said, for months yep. to come it had that had that gone the other way. Unbelievable. Um, as you may, heard, may have heard in uh, Gordon McDonald's uh, news just uh, a moment ago, Canadian press reporting uh, sources saying that uh, the Canadian government has come to agreement with the U.S. government to extend the border closure for another month until August 21st. Yeah, I'd be shocked if this wasn't the case. Uh, John Horgan uh, told us, uh, I forget what day it is, <laughs> last week I guess he told <laughs> us that that, um, that uh, this comes up in every call with premiers and the prime minister, uh, this issue, and that everyone is unanimous that the border must remain closed. And you just have to look at the numbers, and we talked about this daily, Jody, what's going on in the United States is just so different than what's happening in Canada and it's not just Florida, which is, you know, a basket case of 15,000 cases yesterday. Texas, the Sun Belt in particular, is uh, hit hard in the states. But also, you know, border states such as Washington State, yesterday reporting its all-time record for COVID-19 cases, testing positive yesterday of more than 1,100. Um, and again, I've stressed this so many times, Washington has one and a half times the, uh, the population size of British Columbia, yet it has... Uh, more than 10 times the number of cases, uh, more than seven times the number of deaths, more than seven times the number of hospitalizations. Uh, The statistics go on and on and on, which is why, again, we cannot open the border for quite a while. So this now is extended till August 21st, but there's every expectation the border will be closed until well into the fall, until the United States can demonstrate they've got this virus under control, and they're a long way from being able to show that. Uh, whereas Canada is showing that we do have the COVID-19 under control. And the fall, of course, brings us with the so-called second wave, which everybody's wondering what that's going to look like. And if it's really bad, uh, that's another reason to keep the border closed potentially until next spring.
It's quite something, though, Keith, you and I obviously have been having this conversation talking about Washington State, the border, uh, the border right across the country. We months ago were talking about how the border possibly would have closed much sooner had uh, what was happening in King County was happening just south of, of perhaps Toronto or Montreal, because it was quite frightening back then when when sort of yep. the epicenter in the U.S. was just a few, a few uh, clicks down the road. But yet some people, very learned, very engaged and, and concerned community members uh, are just now sort of coming to realize it. I got an email earlier this morning saying, why, why, why are so many flights coming into Canada? Lots into YVR from Manila, where they just locked down half a million people from Texas. These yep. can't all be returning Canadians. I'm hearing you can't drive across the border, but you can hop a flight, no problem. Have you covered this? I actually got a question. Have you covered this? Yeah, please, this please is- reiterate. <laughs> This is a, a, a source of confusion, I think, for, for many. It's true, you cannot drive across the border unless you're an essential service worker, but there are flights arriving at YVR daily, uh, international flights. And in fact, yesterday, the BC Center for Disease Control flagged two flights uh, they said had COVID-19, evidence that COVID-19 was on the flight. One was from Dallas on July 6th, and one was from San Francisco on July 7th. Now, the rule, the quarantine rule right now, and this is actually law, uh, if you arrive at YVR uh, from an international travel, whether you're Canadian or non-Canadian, you've got to go into self-isolation. You've got to be quarantined for 14 days, and you have to show evidence that you have a plan to do that, and there will be follow-up phone calls and checks from, from federal officials to ensure you are complying with the quarantine rules. But having said that, there it remains international travel on both sides of the border via uh, air uh, airlines and again YVR is one of four international uh, airports in Canada right now that are accepting uh, and flying out uh, international travel so there is international travel happening but there are rules associated with it but crossing the border uh, is uh, by by car or, uh, by vehicle is just not allowed unless you're an essential service worker my, my understanding is some of these flights are arriving with a handful of passengers on the plane it's not like a uh, 747 is disgorging 300 passengers at YVR, uh, even a, a flight from China, Manila, or Seattle. There's still scant people traveling, but there are people traveling. So, Keith, along the same lines, um, people were very concerned with the use of the, well, the American coming across the land border and saying we're going to Alaska. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, everybody gets up in arms. We've heard the questions you and I, you're at, involved in every briefing with uh, Health Minister Adrian Dixon and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. And I don't think there has been a briefing in the last month that didn't include some sort of questions surrounding those who might want to usurp those rules. And yet you are constantly pointing out and I think it, it bears reiterating here uh, that you're constantly pointing out that the numbers of people who are slipping through those stats versus what a typical tourism-filled, wide-open border between Canada and the U.S., that those numbers, I, I mean, it's minuscule. Yeah, I went through the numbers with Dr. Bonnie Henry last week. Um, and uh, again, you, you, when, you, when you take out, when you extract the number of commercial truck operators, which are allowed, uh, in fact, vi- are vital to commercial trade, you take them out of the, out of the number pile. Uh, you take out other essential service workers. There's a, there's a fair number of healthcare workers who live on either side of the border yet work in a different country. There's a number of nurses in Bellingham, for example, who work uh, in the Fraser Health Authority and vice versa. A number of nurses in, in the Fraser Health Authority who work in Bellingham. They're allowed to travel. 
So you take all these these uh, essential service workers and, and also families who are reuniting, people who are getting exemptions for bereavement uh, situations and such. You're left with a very small number of people who are crossing the border for an improper reasons or pe- reasons mm-hmm. that can't be documented. We're not talking hundreds of people uh, crossing the border uh, by lying to border officials. Uh, anecdotally, you hear these stories. I get a, daily. I get two or three or four emails from people saying, "I saw a Washington State license plate at a coffee shop." Again, you don't know the backstory. You don't know how long they've been here. Uh, anybody who arrived pre-March 12th, I believe, uh, was here perfectly fine, perfectly legal. I've been talking many times about how I've got a Washington State license car on my street, but it belongs to a student who's been here for more than a year. They're not breaking the rules. So don't jump to conclusions that you think people are here illegally. The numbers just don't support the claim that there's a deluge of Americans crossing the border. Having said that, not all border crossings are the same. I suspect Blaine uh, in in Blaine, Washington, and our border crossing at Peace Arch, may be different perhaps than some of the more rural crossings in the Kootenays in the interior. And perhaps there is more uh, of, of, of crossings in, in those areas than there are at, at Blaine. But again, I just don't think the numbers support the notion that we're being flooded with Americans crossing illegally. Jody Vanson for Mike this week. I'm with Keith Baldry, Baldry's Beat. Phone lines are lighting up uh, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. And just before we get to Christy in Vancouver, I want to ask you, Keith, a little bit more about uh, what we were talking about yesterday with regard to these Kelowna gatherings, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the contact tracing from a Metro Vancouver case that led us to Kelowna and, and how these gatherings with, with each sort of uh, news story that comes out about, you know, the 20, 30 somethings that were getting together, they were really having a party. It's like people are partying in groups. Yes, they are. All of a sudden, we're not obeying the rules suddenly. What is happening? Yeah, so this was a group of uh, people in their 20s. These are young people who gathered, uh, who traveled to Kelowna and gathered at two resorts. Um, someone had the virus, probably didn't even know they had it. Someone, they, they go back to where they live, which is most of them live in Metro Vancouver. Somebody suddenly feels sick, goes in and gets tested, and that's where the contract tracers come into play. We've got hundreds of people um, working for public health in B.C. who contact trace, and what they do is when someone te- tests positive, they're interviewed, and they're asked, okay, where have you been? Who have you talked to? Not just talking about your family. We're talking every person you come in contact with and every place you've been. And these contact tracers were able to quickly pinpoint, relatively quickly, that there was a group of people in Kelowna gathering in these two resorts uh, in close quarters inside uh, spreading the virus. Right now the number is 13 confirmed cases plus four presumptive cases for a total of 17. That number is expected to grow. But it's an example of what can happen when you don't follow the rules. Uh, you yeah. can get away with it some, oftentimes if you're there in a group of 10, 20, 30 people, as long as no one has the virus. If someone does have it, though, and again, perhaps has it unknowingly, uh, just because you're not feeling that ill with it, your friend that you're talking to, if they get the virus through your droplets, can become extremely ill and, and, uh, and, and face a far more adverse outcome than, than you are uh, with, with that virus. So it's a reminder that you, again, have to be careful uh, and, and obey the rules. But it's interesting, again, it's a group of younger people who perhaps think they're immune to this, 
uh, gathering improperly in these two resorts, and then going out to the two establishments that have been named, the Cactus Club and a, and a local fitness place, where they had dinner, where they worked out, and now people yeah. who were at those places are being asked to, to self-monitor to ensure they don't have any symptoms, and if they do, they have to get tested and potentially self-isolate, and anybody who's in that gathering is being told, you have to quarantine yourself now. It's quite something. Okay, let's get to the callers. Christy in Vancouver, you have a question for Keith. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, um, we were in Salt Spring just this past weekend, and there were pleasure boats from the U.S. that had come into the harbor, and the marina workers knew about them. And then there was an instance in the grocery store in Salt Spring where um, one of the groups from the U.S. boats had actually um, come ashore and was in the grocery store, and they were called out and told to go back to their boat. Um, I just, I know it's probably a small a number, as you said, of, of, of instances like this, but I'm just curious because there were quite a large number of U.S. boats, mm-hmm. um, in the harbor and the people in Ganges were saying, you know, we are seeing more and more of them come across. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That is one exception to this that I'm hearing and seeing, quite frankly, uh, we were we sent a, our camera crew to Sydney, BC last month, who did report a number of Americans coming ashore, which they're allowed to do under I think one of the Marine Acts. You can come ashore and get provisions, uh, gas up, but you're supposed to be on your way uh, fairly quickly. So, uh, but that is anecdotally one exception to the border rule that uh, we're seeing reported there are a larger number of U.S. pleasure craft in our waters and coming ashore to get provisions and gasoline. But I, I, again, my read of the marine the legislation is that it's not necessarily a violation. Okay, let's squeeze in one more caller here. Peter in Coquitlam, you've got a question for Keith. Yeah, hi, Keith. How you doing, buddy? Pretty good, Peter. Uh, Keith, uh, I'm an older chap. I wear masks. I wear gloves. I got my hand sanitizer. I go out maybe twice a week, get groceries, and go to uh, Home Depot. This week, I just started noticing. When I went into Walmart, I would say 95% of the people were not wearing masks, and at least that number were not wearing masks when they went to uh, Home Depot. Don't you think we should be wearing masks after we watch what's going on in the States and they're begging people to wear masks before it gets out of control? And and that's my concern. And I just yeah. wanted to know if you could ask, Bonnie, if they've got a defined rule yet and if they're going to start begging people to wear masks before it does get out of control. Yeah. Thanks, so, P- Peter. Yeah. we got just 30 seconds here. Go. Yeah, the mask issue has come up uh, constantly with Dr. Bonnie Henry. It has evolved. It started out as being, ah, we don't really care about masks. Now it's recommended uh, to wear a mask if you can't avoid your physical distance. But she's pretty clear she does not want to make it mandatory because she doesn't think it works for, for everyone in terms of wearing a mask. But it's an evolving policy. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if we get to a tougher policy down the road. And it's worked for Dr. Bonnie Henry to suggest such things as opposed to make things mandatory. We got like exactly. 15 seconds, Keith, but the grim numbers we're, we're expecting at 1130. Uh, I would expect the deficit's going to be well more than $10 billion. Uh, we've already got Whoa. at least $6 billion in added spending with these relief programs. I expect there's going to be a huge hit on the taxation side. We're just not bringing in the money because people aren't spending. The economy has crashed to a halt. So I expect a deficit of more than $10 billion announced at 1130. Ten billion dollars. Okay, we're carrying that press conference live at 11.30 today. As always, Keith, thank you. Alright, take care. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jody Vanson for Mike this week. Time to connect with our good friend, uh, political scientist, David Mosscrop, also author, uh, to join us with his perspectives and takes on on numerous uh, federal political angles. Uh, Geez, David, what shall we ever talk about today? My air conditioner is broken and it's (laughs) 89 degrees in my apartment. You can listen to me whinge about that for a while. There you go. Reporting reporting from the east where it's been absolutely stifling hot. You're in the nation's capital, correct? I uh, got to 44 here. Feels like the other day. 44. Well, back here on your old turf on the west coast, we have pretty much been, we were calling it uh, January and now we're in July. Today is the first real day that's felt like summer. I think here on the West coast, uh, not complaining though, because the forest fire season <laughs> is, is non-existent yeah. out here. So we're grateful for that during a pandemic. We're also uh, keeping a keen eye on Ottawa and in all seriousness, David, I thought of you right away uh, when uh, watching live uh, the press briefing from prime minister, Justin Trudeau outside of Rideau cottage yesterday, where he first, you know, mentioned that, uh, that that the the relief was continuing with regard to the, the the wage subsidy, and then almost immediately pivoted and said, "I'm terribly sorry." Uh, were you watching that live? No, I can't watch those live anymore. It's too nerve wracking. I've got to I got to give myself a little space from it. You, know? <laughs> you don't when get stressed hot. out about much, David. When it's this hot in one's uh, home you should give yourself as much space from these things as possible. But you know what? I was following along, though, and and one of the first thoughts I had was, remember the deficit and the debt? You know, like I remember four or five days ago, we were talking about this uh, nearly unprecedented deficit and debt that took us back to spending around the World War, of, of the World War II era. And it was all anyone could think about for 16 hours. It was an unprecedented moment for 16 hours, and then we were off to the races on this. That's been stunning to me that, that there was a real serious, this is, the we thing is significant, but we had a real serious significant moment around the deficit and the debt and the talk about how we wanted to live now and post COVID and it's just sort of vanished. And it's, it's stunning to me that, that, that the cycle is such that this has happened. How quickly the page turns. And, and not from a, from a minor thing. I mean, from a, a major thing, but it has just sort of disappeared, which has been fascinating. And, and in part, I, you know, if you're the government, you must, in the Liberal Party more generally, you must be wondering which of these you want to have front and center, of course, because they're both extraordinarily difficult conversations to have. Uh, but for whatever reason, the, I guess the, the government feels like they need to tackle this right now, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. The opposition parties have dug in, so I think we'll be talking to me first for some time. So we were watching this morning as Yves-Francois Blanchette, the, the leader of the Bloc Québécois Party, was basically saying it is time uh, that they agree with the Conservative Party and Andrew Scheer uh, that it is time for Justin Trudeau to step aside here while this ethic, com- ethics committee inquiry uh, takes place. Your thoughts on that? I mean, come on. Uh, it, it's minority parliament. If, if you truly, this is one of those situations where I'm just not going to like anybody. It happens quite a bit these days. <laughs> 
in federal politics. But like, you know, we can get into the the, the problem, the deeply problematic elements will be in a second. But if you're the opposition party, the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois, and you truly believe that the Prime Minister can't govern, then you have, then you ought to bring down the government. If you truly think the guy can't do the job and can't do the job during a pandemic, then you as opposition parties in a minority parliament have a duty to say we no longer have confidence in the government and then the, the governor general might choose someone else to try to govern or, or we vote an election. But they're not so going to do that. So this is posturing, right? Right. It's, it, 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 totally it's posturing. I mean, they know he's not going to stand aside. I mean, come on. So it's in posturing. a pandemic. Exactly. It's like calling for the RCMP to launch a criminal investigation. The RCMP is perfectly capable of, on its own of deciding who to investigate and when. And in fact, when politicians step in and call for investigations, they, they, they cast doubt on that whole process. It reminds me a lot of SNC, where the same sorts of things were happening, although it was a majority parliament uh, and a majority government. So uh, it's irritating to me because it's posturing and, and not constructive during a moment when we need to get answers from the government. You know, the Finance Committee is investigating this. The Parliament wants, the Conservatives want the Ethics Committee to investigate this too. The Ethics Commissioner is uh, looking into it. And we ought to have information on this. And the Prime Minister and Finance Minister ought to appear before Parliament. But the more these games get played, the less good information we're going to have and the more nonsense is going to cloud out the good stuff that we do have. Yes. And we had a conversation yesterday here on the program with Def Conacher of Democracy Watch. And it was interesting to sort of drill down into because Democracy Watch has written letters to say that they'd like the Ethics Committee to look deeper into this and and to access the the communications, the behind closed doors uh, co- uh, communications that actually took place that um, offered up this uh, opportunity for this outside charity for we charity that has all of these ties to the Trudeau family to be offered this sole source uh, contract without any process that is typical, not to mention to to reference the fact that when the prime minister said, this is the only real way that we can get this money to the youth of, of, of Canada, mm-hmm. it expedited in, in, a, in a quick fashion when we have actual arms of government funded by taxpayer dollars to do exactly that. With, and, and, and that was never even referenced. So I think unpacking that might be a better goal for opposition parties. Yeah, and, and of course, now the government has said that they're going to try to make this program work. So it, it's obvious that it's not true that we was the only organization that could make it work. I mean, come on, we're we're a G7 for the love of God. We're a G7 country. We yeah. we could be a nuclear power if we wanted to. I think we can find a way to administer nine hundred million dollars. The, the the broader question though is there's two there's two avenues that ought to be investigated. One is the public service avenue, and the other is the is, is the government itself, which is to say cabinet. Now, we're not going to get cabinet documents. I mean, that's, we're, it'll be years and years and years before that, and people will all be dead before that stuff gets declassified. But um, we ought to look into the public service process and say, what was it that led the public service to say, this is how we should go? Because that's the public service side, and that's what the government was initially hiding behind. And then the other side is the cabinet side. Who at the cabinet table thought this was a good idea? We have some indications that there was a discussion there and some questions raised, but the government went ahead anyway, which shows to me a stunning lack of judgment. So I'd like to see accountability both from the public service and from the government, because it seems like there's a massive failure if nobody caught this and said, oh, this is at least going to look bad. You know, that's a stunning arrogance. It's either stunning arrogance or or equally a stunning naivete. Yeah, but you think, you know, if this is at the time the, the, the liberals had had undergone two 
significant ethics probes, one on the right. Akakon yeah. and one on SNC, SNC. and you think yeah. that they would have learned. I mean, if, if you've gone through that twice, you'd think you'd be extraordinarily careful. I mean, you should be careful from day one, but if you've been through that process twice, wouldn't you be extraordinarily careful to make sure you never go through it again? And wouldn't something like this, $900 million, a major charity that you know you've had involvement with, um, you know, someone along the lines should have said, well, maybe we should do beyond our due diligence by poking around the family. We know they're public speakers. We know that we have public speakers. Let's just check this out. I, I don't understand how that wasn't caught. But again, I will say this, it's sort of in, in, def- in, in sort of tepid defense. I do, as a rule, tend to think incompetence does more explanatory work than, than malice. Jody Vanson for Mike this week. I got to tell you, I was reading this column written by my friend Dana G in the Vancouver Sun. If you have an opportunity, I highly re- recommend that you uh, check it out. I mean, of course, you read Dana all the time. But she wrote this uh, review on a book of a Vancouver author uh, by the name of Janie Brown. Her new book is called Radical Acts of Love. And this this is tough subject matter. And yet, while I was reading this article, I... I made a deal with myself that I would pick up this book even during a pandemic because it, it seems like something that many of us need to to swim around in and, and drop our, our fears of having a discussion about death and dying and the process of dying. I've lost three people close to me over the course of this pandemic, none of them thankfully to COVID-19. However, still dealing with the grieving process in in such an abnormal time, it sort of peaks to that why don't we discuss this more? And certainly Janie Brown's new book does exactly that through a storytelling process. Well, why don't we bring uh, the author herself on to tell us a little bit of the inspiration behind uh, this book, Radical Acts of Love. Janie Brown joins us on the line. How are you? Thank you. I'm I'm good today. Thanks, Jody. Ha- thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Re- really glad to have you here. And I know we're grabbing you on your uh, vacation. Uh, we kind of tracked you down because after reading the column that Danaji wrote about your book and and the inspiration behind it, I thought this is a really important conversation for people to have and an important book to read. Can you tell about the twenty conversations uh, that are sort of the inspiration in your storytelling in uh, in, in ra- radical action? of love. Mm, thank you. Yes, I, I chose 20 stories. My background is in nursing and psychology, and I, I have worked with people with cancer and their families for almost 30 years. And over all those years, I've been listening as best I can to understanding, you know, how do we face into, you know, life's really greatest challenge um, for all of us. I mean, so I, I, as I've been listening over these years, I thought I really want to, to, to pinpoint certain people and certain stories in certain ways um, that we can approach death. And that's why I did it this way. And I I think the book, uh, my hope with the book is that people reading it, as you said, you know, this is a very difficult subject. Um, But I really wanted people to feel reassured that, you know, somehow we have this understanding and intelligence wired in just as we did when we were born to how to get into this world. We know how to leave this world that maybe we could be reassured especially given, you know, how much is going on and how, you know, death is circulating our world in such a specific way right now. So these people in these stories, I think, um, show a lot of uh, wisdom and they tell us how to, you know, get close up to death and how to do that, how to face fear, how to 
grieve the ones that, you know, we know are going to die, we love. And I, I, I really hope the story would be a reassuring book and it would also sort of empower us to have these difficult conversations. And it is so incredibly difficult, but as somebody who has, uh, as you mentioned, had mm-hmm. a decades-long career as an oncology nurse, a counselor, you, uh, you've you lived this, and, and the angels who walk among us are those who uh, spend their daily lives supporting those who are navigating this, and the families. And one of the things that really struck me was the story of the two brothers and, and mm-hmm. their courage to come forward and tell their story. So in the interest of time, give us that snippet, and then we'll, the, re- the rest of the stories we'll just have to get from the book. Mm-hmm. This was a you know a, a young man, a wonderful young man who'd given a lot to his community here in Vancouver. Had a a long term illness, and in his thirties, um, you know, he decided that you know how am I going to live out these days with you know so many surgeries, so much suffering. And what was beautiful is that he approached um, our organization, Callanish Society. He's like, you know, I need to come and talk with somebody because I need to figure out how to do this and do this with dignity and grace because this is tough and I, you know, I feel like I'm getting very close to the end of the road. And what he did was one of the, you know, most beautiful things I think we can do, which is to say, yes, this is my personal journey. I need to figure out my own fear, my own way of doing this. And, you know, I see a lot of people do that. But the people who say that I really need to do this, not just for myself to figure out how to face the end of life, but to do it with my family and have conversations with my family uh, so that they can come alongside and they can talk to me about their fears. And this is what he did. Um, And, you know, we had several sessions um, just uh, with he and I, and then he had his brother and his wife and other family members. His father came in and he was willing to say, you know, let's do this together. This is hard. Uh, it takes a lot of courage, and he really led the way. And was it was very beautiful to be a part of that, um, those conversations that you know he was able to have to say, let let's say goodbye in a, in a conscious and real way, and um, do it with courage and an ability to talk about the fear and the and and the grief. And it was all present. And I was very very moved about what he was able to do. So important uh, that you mention how uh, family members often worry that engaging in talk about dying with their loved ones might be perceived as as giving up mm. hope. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think you see this so often, don't you? And I mean, when you are yeah. a family member, I mean, I've been through my own personal losses when my father died. And, you know, the, the people often, you know, the, the supporters want to feel that, you know, I'm the strong one. I'm the one who has to hold this hope for you. And I, I think there's a lot of fear about saying, you know, I'm actually scared this isn't going the way that we all hope for. And so I think yeah. hope can be a very important and necessary part of every journey. And I don't know if we ever really need to give up hope. But I think we need to say, well, let's continue hoping. But let's also look at the what if. You know, what if this isn't going the way that we're all hoping it will do? And and kind of cracking that shell a little bit to say, yeah, well, we don't have to stop hoping for miracles. You know, why not? But let's not be in denial. Let's, let's talk openly and and say, you know, how do we want to go through this if it doesn't turn out the way that we hope it will? And I think that's the step, the first step to take. It's like a bridge, isn't it? And and I think yeah. it's often the person who's ill has to take that first step and say, you know, okay, let's, you know, let's go for it. Because the family member, I mean, I know that feeling. I, 
you know, do we, we're frightened to bring it up because, and there are people who will say, yes, don't give up on me and, and kind of hold you to that. And I think that creates a lot of tension in families when there's a person who says, you know, I am just not going to die. You know, this kind of that strong force of will, our instinct to live is very strong. And sometimes people say, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not able to face this. And then the family has to go into this position of holding some falsity together, which I think creates a lot of tension and often disharmony in families. So I think this book tries to kind of open that up a little bit and say, well, what can we do to relieve this tension? How do we take these steps forward? And and I think once the steps forward are taken, there's a lot of relief that comes into families to say, we can do this together. People have done this for centuries around the world, walk with one another through this dying process. And, you know, we just need to be empowered and brave to do that together. Incredibly soothing just to speak with you, I must add. Um, I, As I keep reiterating, I, I found out about you via Dana mm. G's column. And one of the quotes that really struck me, so I'm going to quote you to you for the sake of mm. our listener, because I think this is as poignant. And this is why, for me, this is a must read. Uh, you said to Dana, our first breath is a signal that there will be a last breath. And death mm. and life work together. We like beginnings more than we like endings. Let's face it. We're all about excitement at the start. And that to me mm. was like, oh, isn't that so true? I mean, I'm pregnant. I mm. meet my baby. like these. But that first breath guarantees that the last breath will come someday. Mm-hmm. So it's a very hard reality to think we have a finite number of breaths in our life. I mean, I think that, mm. that kind of struck me. And there's a wonderful writer, John O'Donohue, and he said something that really stayed with me. He said, you know, um, death comes out of the womb with you. But everyone's too excited at your arrival to notice. I thought, wow, that's, mm-hmm. again, a powerful statement that stayed with me. And I, I think that, you know, we're so good at preparing for birth, aren't we? I mean, we do prenatal classes. We, yeah. you know, we take it on. We choose our team. We know where we want to be. And somehow we've missed that at the end of life where people say, well, I'll just deal with it when it's kind of upon me. And, of course, that just doesn't really work out very well often if we don't know where we're going to be or we don't know who's going to help us and we need teams of people, you know, to help us walk that way. We need community. So, yeah, I mean, I think this idea of our breath and how birth and death are, you know, I think they're kind of wrapped up together somehow. And when we can really understand that, the people that I speak with every day really know that, that their their breath and their life is connected to their death. And I think when they get that deeply, they can also really start to make choices about living. And I think that's, of course, for all of us, you know, if we can take those steps into those difficult territories, we can say, well, then let's really choose, like, you know, how do we want to live, knowing that there will at some point be a last breath, and we don't know when that will be. And that's the great mystery of death. You know, we have no idea what will happen. I just had a major bear encounter on a camping trip. And, uh, you know, that, that moment where, you know, death crosses through and you think, okay, is this, is this the moment, you know, and luckily for me, it wasn't, but it was, you know, an intense experience of, you know, where death kind of crosses through and kind of, you know, whispers its breath on you. And we don't know. And I think that's what makes death so frightening. Um, but I think it's this deep reflection, I think, that we can all do if we have the courage and it can really relieve some part in us that says, you know, we, we, can, we can do that and we know how to do it. 
Janie Brown, thank you so much for this discussion. The new book is called Radical Acts of Love, storytelling that might help you navigate the inevitable in, in a way that makes every single day and every single breath worth that much more. We thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jody. Really appreciate it.